Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight, Ms. Laura? I'm really good. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest and say achy since you outed me last week and when I said I was good and then you joked about that's not what you just said. Oh, I'm having about a, that last a, week. a 50-year-old weekend. I don't know why I'm just really achy, but anyway, I'm hoping tomorrow's better because today's a little better than yesterday and... That's now, you're not 50 yet. You have a lot of I know. I'm, I'm pushing it. But boy, I, I don't know. I feel more like 80 this weekend. I keep saying, I don't know what's wrong. You suggest some kind of weird virus, but I can't yeah, say maybe it is. I'm tired. So anyway, other than that, I'm fine. It was a restful, nice weekend, so that was good. That is good. I've cleaned like a maniac all weekend and done all that necessary stuff that you have to do from time to time to make your house habitable. Livable. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's it. We had a family in town Friday night, which was really nice. But I did do a lot of cleaning Wednesday and Thursday nights in preparation. So maybe that's what it is. I did too maybe much cleaning. Maybe that's it. That's it. Well, I don't do that. I always say housework done correctly can about kill you. <laughs> Believe yeah. it's the truth. Yeah. Well, Thank goodness work, I don't do that it? that often. Yeah. Oh, well. What's our show about tonight? Well, tonight is show number 130, and mm-hmm. we are going to be talking about forcing a child to respond because I got a great email from someone that I'm not even going to give a lot of details about because I want her to her, to protect her confidentiality, but we're going to talk about that. And we're also, because... Co-treating is mentioned in that same email. We're going to talk about what we feel about co-treating, when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate, when it's indicated, when it's not such a good idea, and blah, blah, on about that. Because I don't think we've ever talked about co-treating before on the show. Can you remember talking about that? I don't know that we haven't. Heaven only knows we can blah, blah about most (laughs) things. So I don't think this is going to be a challenge. I don't either, so that'll be good to talk about. But before we do that, let's do the announcements. The upcoming conference schedule can be found on my website at teachmetotalk.com. But if you've not listened to the show and haven't heard me say this over and over for the past few weeks, I'm going to be in Dallas on October 19th, Shreveport, Louisiana on October 21st, New Orleans on October 27th, Lafayette, Louisiana on October 28th, and then Indianapolis on November 3rd. So if you're in one of those areas and you do what Kate and I do, come see me, spend the day with me. It will be a fun, fun time, I promise. The next set of announcements, I always like to point out what's on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page because that's generally where I do my new posting since, I think I said this last week, when I've tried to post some new articles lately, it completely crashes the website, so there's something weird going on there. So I've been putting them these little updates on the Facebook page, and this week I included an article about children with autism and gastrointestinal symptoms, and they've linked that to altered digestive genes, and boy, have we known the kids on the spectrum with tummy problems, haven't we? Just about 100%, I would say. They either have constipation or diarrhea or a combination of both. Lots of gas, lots of puffy bellies. 
when we, mm-hmm. you know, when they're uncomfortable. And sometimes you think, I know why you're crying and acting like that, because your stomach hurts. And I would cry and act like that, too, if my stomach hurt like that. Right. And so lots, that's why lots, lots of really picky eaters, and I think that kind yeah. of goes hand in hand with the the gut problems. I do, too. Some children just mm-hmm. naturally try to restrict what they're putting in their body. Sometimes the research tells us that they crave what's actually worse for them. And so, again, I can kind of see that. That's why there are so many diet modifications recommended for kids on the spectrum. But we've said over and over, boy, that would be hard from a mom's perspective to make that work in a busy household. So um, I just wanted to point listeners' attention to that. We're not really going to talk about that at length tonight. So just take a look at that article and see what you think. Um, Other things I posted on there, there's some questions about discounts on the DVDs. Um, and there's some discount codes that you can look at on the Facebook page. You can always look at that on the website, too. And we're running a free shipping special right now through October 1st, so you can enter the coupon code free shipping for any DVD or therapy manual order, and uh, we'll we'll eat that cost for you. So it's a good time to order a DVD or a manual if you've been thinking about it and have not quite taken the plunge. Um, The other things that are on... Uh, Facebook page, there's a little reminder on there to go for joy, (laughs) that connecting is the first step toward communicating, and I think we have to remind ourselves of that every single day. We set foot outside our own homes to work with other kids because sometimes we get the order in the wrong sequence and push, push, push for words when a kid may not be social enough to talk or understanding enough to talk, and the emphasis really should be on making that initial engagement and social connection. So that day I was feeling that. I think I got a couple little emails in a row that reminded me that I needed to remind people of that. So that's on there. Um, And just I think that's about it, a couple of other questions from mom. So if you want to take a look at that, please do so. And like the page while you're there. I always get excited when I see that little likes number go up. So do me a favor there. And I think that does it with announcements. So we're going to move on to our primary topic tonight. Okay, this, again, is an email that I received this week, and I don't want to give out a lot of identifying information. Um, because I don't want this person to get in trouble. <laughs> but she's talking about treating a four-year-old who with autism, and she says that she's seen him several times. He definitely has words, and in past sessions he's been able to request items by saying, I want whatever. She says he can point out colors, name animals, and follow one-step directions. He displays joint attention occasionally, but this is not consistent. Mom says that at home he comes together and takes her to whatever he wants to play with, and sometimes he will say words that will go with whatever he wants. And she goes on to say that during good sessions, he'll choose a picture card for what he wants to do, and he'll ask for more. And then here's the line where it starts with the explanation of the problem. The difficult thing is that not all sessions are good. In fact, we have more bad sessions than good ones. She says that they co-treat with an OT, and so a lot of times they do some OT things at first, like swinging him, and then they want him to come sit at the table and work on coloring. Many times when we ask him to use his words, he begins to cry. He'll gesture and he'll point towards something, Um, But the OT and the speech pathologist usually tell him that he has to ask with words, and they prompt him with the sign for I. Sometimes he will follow through. Other times he cries, runs away, throws himself on the floor, etc. And she goes on to tell the story about the last session. 
that sounds pretty hard. She says the OT put um, the kid put him in a seat and strapped him in and began reading a book to him because he had chosen the picture with um, the picture book on it, but he did not want to read the book, and then they had him stay in the baby seat anyway, and he cried the whole time, and he kept trying to flail himself around, and she adds that he was on a soft mat so he didn't get hurt. Um, and they were cueing him with, he needed to say the phrase, I need help. And he did, but after a period of crying. And this person says, I just feel terrible for this little guy. <laughs> the other therapists that she's working with think that his uh, actions are all behavioral, that he's just being stubborn and refusing to use his words. And they believe that his mom gets into crying at home, which has led him to cry rather than talk. And But this this goes on to say, this is the heart of the letter of the that the therapist sent. She said, I'm wondering, does he really get what it means to ask for something, or is he just repeating our words? After Thursday's session, I felt terrible, thinking the session was a complete waste. We got two or three phrases out of him, and he probably will not want to come back next week, so I'm wondering how it will even go. Do you think we need to take a step back and not require so much from him, even though he's shown in the past that he can do it? She says, I feel like he wants to communicate with us. Uh, He has to want to communicate with us, or he's never going to do it. I just wonder, after so many sessions like this with similar results, maybe this isn't a tantrum. Maybe there's something we're missing. I know it's probably hard for you to say much since you haven't been with him, but this has just been on my mind, and I wanted to pick your brain. I want to get through to this kid with any help or words of uh, wisdom. She says, I don't have very much authority, but I'm going to pass on some new ideas because they apparently need some. So what were your first thoughts, Kate, when you read this? Did it kind of make you – I just felt horrible for that little boy and for every person involved in this situation because it sounds like nobody's having any fun. Right. Yeah, I have to say that um, I tend to sympathize more readily with the gal who wrote the note saying, this doesn't seem right. What do you all think? Um, Right. I wouldn't be comfortable being a part of that session either. It doesn't sound like it's uh, a very constructive way to encourage communication. And I don't think that because he can sometimes label things and sometimes uses an I want phrase that he's, uh, proficiently verbal to assume we're going to force this out of him. And I think even mm-hmm. if that is, in the end, ultimately successful and they get a phrase like, I want help, um, I think they did a much better job teaching him to hate therapy than they did <laughs> teaching him to communicate. I'm sorry, but I do. I mean, that's that's the way I, I would know. feel if I witnessed it, and that's the way I felt when I read it. And it sounds like that's the way the gal felt who wrote it. Like, this was do- horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and enough mm-hmm. for her to seek out some additional opinions, and mm-hmm. she said that it's been weighing on her mind and that she mm-hmm. just wondered uh, for some additional ideas, if anybody might have some additional ideas. But I think already her instincts are really, really good. For her to be in a situation like that this early in her career and to say there's got to be a better way, you know, and I think I just don't understand why so many clinicians get really into that whole power struggle thing with thinking that everything is associated with behavior. And, boy, we have talked about that a lot on this show. And because it comes up almost every week with an email that I get from a therapist or a mom or somebody who happens to call me or talk to me or a question in a conference with separating behavior. And I just want to say, 
you are there to work on communication. You are not there to tease out. And I got this one letter. Do you remember this a long time ago, Kate, when somebody, when a speech pathologist wrote me yourself and said she'd rather work on attitude than comprehension? And that that always comes back to me. And I think, why in the that. world would you even say that? I mean, why would you admit that out loud, that you were more concerned with a kid uh, having a better attitude than understanding language? Does that even make sense? I wonder if she really meant it that way. And certainly this well, person didn't say that. you know, that. I mean, just listening to you say that, I think, well, now, if she meant – if what she meant was I'd rather have a very positive session where the child is enjoying him or herself first. Now, she didn't mean that. She meant behavior. <laughs> she meant no she kid's going to be a do... person during my hour. Yeah. Right. She meant you uh-huh. do what I say or else. Mm-hmm. And I just think when we set up things like that, especially when we make it about talking, when it's a do it or else, you almost always force the kid to the or else. Or else I'm going to cry this entire hour. Or else I'm going to flail myself around and make you hope that your liability insurance covers any any injury that I'm about to make happen right here. Because it's on you, lady. You know, right. I wonder... I just wonder about that, and that's what you said is so perfectly. They might have taught him something, which is I hate this place and I hate all of you people who don't get me. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it ha- my hat's off to this person who wrote this, who said, "There's, I feel awful about this. Surely there's another way to make this work. And I think any time you start getting that nagging feeling of, oh, no, this is bad, it is bad. Right. You know, that's your internal gut check saying, stop, stop doing this. Find a different way. What you're doing is not working. And any time I feel that little that pressure or that um, thing like, oh, my goodness, uh, this isn't going so great, I automatically stop and think, what can I change about me that will make this go better? Because so many times you cannot wear – I mean, you can, I guess, technically, like they do with this little boy, wear him down, where two or three times, I don't know if he's there for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or an hour – he performs and does what they tell him to do, which is say a phrase. But I don't think that that's worth it. And who wants to spend 30 minutes? I don't want to spend five minutes doing that in the session, do you? No. I try really hard not to. Me yep. too. Uh... And I can see how they would think, okay, he can use – sometimes the words are there, so we're going to make this a little more – focused and push it a little more but there's a different way to do that and you need i think i don't even think just based on what she reported that he probably has a good enough core vocabulary established to be really functionally using phrases one he's not doing it at home he just Mm -hmm. as she reported and again we haven't seen this kid we don't know i might spend the hour with him and say well good luck with you just go good luck i doubt it but i'm just i'm just you know, cautioning anyone who's listening that I I haven't seen this kid, so who knows how it really is. And there's always wiggle room when you're talking about a particular kid versus talking about him hypothetically as we are here. But I would think just based on what this person wrote in that he isn't using language consistently enough and that it's not well enough established for them to be doing withholding, which is what they're doing with him. 
and there, and it doesn't say that they're following those guidelines. If you're prompting that three to five times and then giving it to him anyway, it doesn't sound like he gets it on the 35th time unless he uses the phrase. I don't think the phrase, I, I wouldn't be targeting phrases with a kid at that level yet, would you? No, I mean, I think that there are lots of kids, particularly those kids I've worked with on the spectrum, who get some language and they do what he's right. doing. He he knows some colors. He can label some pictures. He can, you know, and you think, woo It's all got visual. Yeah, yeah, but are they using language functionally yet? No. They don't really have right. a clue how to do that. And my right. guess is that he falls more into that category, and I think it's right. it's a common assumption, but it's a false assumption to think that if a child knows that's a fire truck, he can therefore turn around and request the fire truck. Mm, right. It doesn't always work that way. With typical it's language a, kids, yes. With right. spectrumy kids, no. <laughs> it's Just, a totally different pragmatic function. And even though mm-hmm. he has the word in a set, cir- set of circumstances, like I'm going to label on a picture, I can, I can, if I see it and if the planets are aligned correctly, I can say it, but it doesn't sound like he's really consistently using any words. And again, I know that true behaviorists are cringing when they're hearing us say that because they do think that you just reinforce it enough and he will do it. But I've lived and lived and lived with therapy sessions like this, and you can't always get that. And, like, they're getting it in that two or, two or three times in X amount of minutes, and I wouldn't even think that that's a good enough approach for two or three times in, you know, how many ever minutes, 10 minutes, because you're wasting a whole lot of time there, in my opinion. And it sounds like that that's what the person who wrote the letter feels, too. You know, can't we take a step back? Those were her direct words. Can't we do something else? And I think she, again, instinctively knows, okay, he's got to like us, and he's got to like what we're doing before we're ever going to be really, really effective with him. And if I were that mom, no way would I want to pay for a session like that. I mean, just from a practical, common-sense approach, and no way would I think, okay, they're eating up my insurance dollars with power struggles like this every week, and and he's not anywhere closer to talking than when we started. And I just think that from a really practical perspective, that that would be really, really, really hard for me to do as a mom. But some moms think, though, because you have the title after your name that you automatically know exactly what you're doing and that you have clinical rationale for it, and a lot of times therapists don't. And it a lot could of be moms that, the, think that, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting. Sometimes it's those not-quite-as-well-educated moms who just kind of say, that doesn't seem to be helping at all. Sometimes it's better educated moms who say, well, she's the speech therapist, she's the OT, she's the DI, I'm going to trust her. And I, I want to say, follow your instincts a little bit more. <laughs> you know, your gut's telling you it's not right, but they want, you know, they're trying to be good parents. and They're trying, they're trying to be trying good, to be, yeah. Yeah, trying to do what they're supposed to do. But in this case, I mean, I can't imagine watching that, um, if that had been my child, whether they be right. delayed or typical, to have them sit endure however 30, 45, an hour long session where they're basically being tormented. I mean, it sounds like right. he was quite tormented. It sounds like he, right. the, the, the uh, exchange she described, he chose a picture card of a book, and it sounds like mm, he didn't necessarily even really want that book. 
Right. And that, that that would lead me to question, okay, does he really get the whole picture right. exchange thing? You know, he has some that's idea you take him. Yeah, but does he really understand if you take him, that's what you're going to get? Mm, I think they should definitely build in a way for him to negate that choice. You know, they should have some some way of him saying, oops, wrong choice, I didn't really want that book. And that might not be verbal, but that might be something he could do with, you know, he could take that same picture card and stick it in a a box that means we're done, and he could move on. I mean, I would never force a child to sit in a seat and listen to a book that he didn't want in the first place, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot wrong with that. Yeah. The, he if he de- if they haven't done picture discrimination with him, if they don't know that he truly is selecting a picture, you know, and Pex teaches us how to do that. Pex says the picture exchange communication system. For those of you who aren't familiar with that um, acronym, says that you teach that. You teach that picture discrimination skill with kids by giving a preferred task and a non-preferred task. If they pick the non-preferred task, you initiate it, but you certainly uh, – nowhere in that manual does it say do it for 20 minutes or however – until the kid says, I don't want that anymore. You know, there's mm-hmm. got to be an element of common sense. I mean, that's what I think about all the time. Where is the common sense in that approach? And like you said, sometimes it's the less educated moms that will just stand up and say, okay, uh, we're not doing it that way anymore. Yeah, you're not going to force my kid to sit in that seat and listen to that book for 30 minutes while he's screaming and trying to hurl himself onto the floor, even if there is a pad underneath him to stop him from being really hurt. Right. I mean, I do right. think mm, they're playing a dangerous game and they're teaching him not to like therapy. And I think right. that the gal who wrote the letters kind of says, gee, this doesn't really feel like a way to encourage communication with this little guy. Right. And it's like, yeah, right. you're right. You know, it sounds like <laughs> he, he may get yeah, the she, phrase, I don't want, I don't like it really fast. Yeah. And yelling it as he's fighting to not go down the hallway. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, like, he, oh. yeah, and he's communicating a lot here. Mm-hmm. The whole, I don't want to do it anymore. And at some point, we have to, you know, we have to reinforce that with kids, that their words and their gestures are power. And when they say, I don't want to do it, now that's not to say those of you moms who are cringing right now saying, oh, no, she's not telling me that, is she? I'm not saying that. But in the context of a therapy session, when you are working to teach communication and that what you do matters and what you do can change your world, still letting him indicate over and over and over, no, I don't want to do it, and then then saying, well, it doesn't matter what you want, we're going to do it anyway, I think that's just a terrible, terrible lesson to keep reinforcing. That We want you to communicate, but when you do, uh, mm, you're not quite saying what we want you to say, so therefore you don't get to do it. Too bad for you. Yeah, we're going to kind just of think ignore it. Yeah. It does just sound and, like they've really decided this is a behavioral issue, and by right. gum they're going to break them. And I think that it may, there's, you know, I think oftentimes with children we see even under three, is there a behavioral component? Well, yes, there oftentimes is. But as often as not, there is also a huge communication component, a huge social yeah. component, and this guy's on the spectrum. So we know all those things are also part of it. Right. Is it partly behavior? Yes, I'm sure it is. Is it also he has problems with communication. He has social deficits. He Yes, 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 yes. And I think, well, why don't we address all of those things in an effective, right. productive, therapeutic, and positive way and not just decide that he's a stinker and he's not going to get away with it when he's with us? 
You know? Right. And you, oh. you really don't win. You really don't no. win. Even, even if you, quote, unquote, force him to do it and make him do it, there's really no winner there. And if an adult feels really good about that, then you've chosen the wrong profession. I mean, who gets their jollies on winning those kind of power struggles? When your main job is to help a child develop communication skills and to work on, you know, whatever the OT is working on, sensory processing or whatever, taking that do-it-or-else, strictly behaviorist approach, I mean, I just want to, when people are telling me that, I'm going to say, you are too good for that. Now, you just stop this nonsense right now and think about what you're doing. You have had better training. You have invested more hours. You have a better education than this. And besides, you're probably a really nice person underneath all this yucky right now, so just quit the baloney. <laughs> we know it must be at, in there. It would be so yeah, interesting it has to, to be know. for you to want to do this profession. Right, and I just, you would think. I, you want to say, stop it and look at him as a little person, and you he's got to like this. I mean, I that just, again, to me is common sense therapy 101. And I love what you said about, there's hardly ever a kid that you have that doesn't have some kind of behavioral component. And really, that's true of school-age kids, teenagers, young adults, those of us in our 40s. I mean, what what episode in life do you have when there's not some kind of behavioral component? How many of us do the dishes with a bad attitude or mm-hmm. wash all of the laundry in-house? Yeah, we're still doing the laundry, but in our true selves here, we are pretty darn resentful and stuff. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there are behavioral parts to every person every day and for us to think that we can break that in a four-year-old with autism who has huge developmental issues i think you better be focused on the developmental thing that you are equipped to fix and help get better rather than treating that whole behavior thing because i mean to me that just we're, we're we're looking at the wrong things there. You're looking at what most of the time for most of us that is out of our realm of expertise. We are communication experts. We are developmental experts. We are you know whatever fill in the blank for whatever discipline you are. That's what you know how to do. And so spend your time during and that's what the parents or the private the insurance company or your state program or whatever. That's what they're paying you to address. It's the communication part. And so so many times, if you will just focus on ha- helping the kid learn to like therapy, to have fun, to understand what you're trying to get him to do and to participate, so much of that other behavior stuff disappears. And I know people who routinely have behavior issues with kids do not believe me when I say that. But, I mean, it is true. How many times have we said that, Kate, that when you you don't have a ton of behavior in and out every day, all day long, with issues with kids on your caseload and I don't either because our first premise is we are going to have a good time you are going to enjoy this hour with me and if you can learn to like me and to play with me then you will learn to learn from me and I think when you when you change your focus to that so much of that other yucky stuff really does go away especially in really really young kids and I dare say it would with with anybody how many of us as adults want to date somebody or be married to somebody who's a total grump and a dictator and you know my my way or the highway you know how many of us want to do that even you know and again I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach kids to respect authority blah 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 you know goodness knows I'm pretty conservative about those kinds of things but when you when you shift the focus back to enjoying yourself, engagement, that social interaction piece, 
working on comprehension and then working on expressive communication, a lot of that behavior stuff goes away. And I know you feel that way too. Absolutely. And I will acknowledge that that to me it is inherent that when you embrace a more flexible somewhat more child-directed approach in that you're willing to follow his lead. Sometimes you're willing to uh, perhaps put something away sooner than you would have liked, get out a new thing before you would have chosen to, blah, blah, blah. That is it always as productive as it might have been had it gone completely according to your schedule? Well, no, it isn't. On the other hand, it sure is far more productive than having a kid throw a fit for an entire session. And, you know, that's not that hard to do to get them to do if you draw the line and say, nope, it's my way or the highway. You're going to sit here and you're going to do it until this hour is over or until you do it. As often as not, the hour is over and they've accomplished virtually nothing. And I think a little bit of flexibility and a little bit of, willingness to say, okay, well, this wasn't exactly my plan, but I'm going to be just a little bit flexible here, (laughs) follow your lead just a little bit, and meet you halfway. And oftentimes when you do that, it might, you know, I don't know that it works. I think sometimes when people are really, really regimented and focused and kind of type A personalities, they have this preformed idea and agenda, and, oh, if it doesn't follow that agenda, well, then they're upset. Well, Mm, you know, this is a four-year-old kid on the spectrum, and it's not going to go right. exactly according to plan, but that's okay. You know, That's I mean, okay, and your agenda mm-hmm. needs to be not that you're going to do X, Y, Z activities that day. Your agenda needs to be he's going to have better joint attention. He's going to stay with me longer. He's going to understand more language. He's going to use more single words or holistic phrases or carrier phrases or whatever your goal is. Those are your goals. It's not about we're going to get through five of these toys or or we're going to do all 35 of these flashcards or we're going to color the darn page. That's That should not be the goal with a speech pathologist. It should be broader than that and looking at the communicative um, skills that you're targeting. You, who cares what you play with? Who cares really as long as the kid learns to understand more words and use words more consistently, more spontaneously, or again, whatever level you're at, imitate more words, you know, whatever your goal is, the activities don't really matter. And again, I think people get so focused on that that you're going to complete the task yeah. And if they were looking at the communication part of it, they've already met that goal. The kid said three new words and says, all done. Woohoo! That is awesome. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> right. He has communicated to you. And people get so locked into that. And I guess you're right. I think it is more of a personality thing and more of a temperament thing um, and more of, again, I have to have it go a certain way. And, I mean, if you're looking for it to go a certain way, why are you working with young kids with autism? <laughs> because yeah. you really picked a bad match <laughs> for that personality type because it is absolutely, almost assuredly not going to go your way most of the time because that's just right. the nature. It's just the nature of what we do. And so, again, sometimes you do want to say, you know, when somebody writes me an email, I want to almost write, pick a new job. You know, <laughs> this is not for you. 
<laughs> and I'm only halfway kidding about that because when you get lock, so locked into things, again, you're not going to be that happy with something you can't predict. And working with really young children in birth to three or these young preschoolers with severe issues, you are not going to be able to predict a lot of what they do. And that is just how it is. Um, and so I think you're right about needing to kind of take a step back and temperament-wise re-examine the agenda because oftentimes they're looking at the wrong thing. I mean, there one of my reference. first... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, one of my first things for this guy, if I were working with him, would be he will enjoy our therapy sessions. I mean, Go right for joy! There, yeah. yeah, go for joy. I mean, really, yeah. as simple and as obvious as that sounds, sounds like he's pretty much already decided therapy is not his cup of tea, and you can call right. that behavior, or you can call that mm, inappropriate therapy shoved down his throat. Wrong <laughs> goals, call, wrong yeah, methods, you know, wrong strategies. Yeah, right. you can call it a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I think that... <laughs> You know, he may have his issues that make it hard for him to endure any therapy session, but I think if it were presented in the right way, they could be having much more positive sessions than what they're getting, forcing him to sit in the seat and ask for help to be done or whatever he had to ask for help for. It just sounds like, oh, it sounds painful. I wonder if the mom was in there watching it. I kind of doubt it. I doubt it. Uh, A lot of times when they're on site, the mom doesn't get to see it. Right. Right, and it does make it harder when you're in their home. I think people are a little less likely to take that approach because you do feel like, okay, I'm not even on my territory here. But somehow in a clinical environment that might happen a little more readily. Who knows, though? I've heard harder stories either way. And, again, the point here is not to beat up those poor therapists who may be doing all they know how to do. But I love the person's initial response who wrote the letter who said there's got to be a better way and there really is and I love your point Kate that our first agenda for him would be just to make him happy and really if he only says three words when he's mad he is absolutely more than likely going to say a lot more than three words when he's happy I mean you get six words and guess what you got a hundred percent improvement and that would almost always happen Right. If you follow his lead a little bit and let him be more in control of what he wants to do, and again, I think that the therapist would say, well, we're using pictures and we're not making him always get the verbal response. He's got the pictures there to use. Yeah, but they probably do need a picture that means I am done with you, like you said, or putting it in a box or doing something else where he has a little more control. There is mm-hmm. a reference for this, and it's from... And I know, Kate, um, you always kind of giggle at speech pathologists who want a reference for everything. And you, you're, we're funny when we talk about that. And you'll say, you know, that therapist hadn't read an article in 20 years. Why in the world would she want a reference? But here it is. <laughs> in the February 2011 online version of the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology, and again, for those of you who are speech pathologists, that reference, I put it on the Facebook page under, um, on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page under the post about today's podcast and so you can click on that link and go straight to that reference now that's for those of you who are asha members the america speech american speech and hearing association members for those of you who are not speech pathologists and want to take a look at that you can still read the abstract there but i have a whole chapter about it in uh, teach me to talk the therapy manual and this is basically what this article says and again i know when i read these things that 
some therapists automatically say, well, I do all that. How is that new information? Sometimes it's the way you do it, and it's really examining if what you're really doing in your clinical practice matches what this research has tells us is productive in helping children, especially young children with autism, attend during therapy sessions. And so, um, again, it's Chapter 4 in the Therapy Manual, but this is what all this research says. And they, this, I can't remember exactly how many studies they looked at, but this is, like an, this is a tutorial, and this is what we call reviewing evidence-based practices. And so they looked at all these studies with young children with autism, and they came up with these common things that had been proven by research to tell us help young children attend. Number one, choose toys and activities the child likes. Wow, isn't that deep, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> Woo, that so would be why deep. I have a car garage and attic full of toys because by gum they just don't all like the same thing wouldn't that be nice that <laughs> would be nice if they all way. did like the same things but when you have gotten to know young children and when you really look at a kid like this is i mean he already has ot so he probably has a pretty um you probably already know a lot about his sensory profile it's just the mm-hmm. ot likes to swing him so what does that mean he likes movement yeah. And so what kinds of toys would you get to move with? And so those are the things that you plan and you think, gosh, I bet he's going to like this because I'm not going to have him sitting in one place. I think balloons would be good. I think bubbles would be good. I think something, some kind of car game where we roll the cars across the floor, where we use the Hot Wheels and motorcycles and shoot those those bikes across the floor where he can run and get those and run back. Rockets that you, the birthday party favor rockets or the stomp rockets or any kind of toy, um, sky dancer, any of those little things that fly, anything that moves where he doesn't have to sit on his behind and listen to you blah, blah, on and on and on would probably be something that he likes. So that would be what you would do is pick something, plan your therapy session around things that you know that he likes. If mom says that he likes trains at home and you think that you can come up with some ways to target language with the trains, use the darn trains. You know, and again, I think this should really be called common sense speech pathology or developmental intervention or whatever you want to call it because isn't that pretty basic? that a kid would be more likely to pay attention when he's having fun and when he's doing something he likes, yet a lot of people miss that point because they're trying to do the whole, the child will participate in non-preferred activities, and while, yeah, you do have to learn as you get school age to do things that an adult tells you, even if you don't want to do it, when you are four and on the spectrum, you have a whole lot of lessons to learn before you get to that one, don't you think? Oh, gosh, yes. And we don't have any idea where he's functioning, but we have an idea yeah, where he is language-wise, and he sure isn't for language-wise. So, obviously, there are some big gaps between his chronological age and his developmental age. Right. And, yes, I'm guessing. I mean, how often, even my experience with books and therapy is even those select children who really do like books, and occasionally I'll get one on my caseload that really likes books. Normally what happens is, once they've figured out that I'm the toy lady and I'm there to have fun, they don't like the books while I'm there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, their mom yeah. may report, he loves to read books. Oh, every night we read three books. And, and I would say, oh, that's great. And then occasionally I might try a book with that kid because I think, well, mom says he really loves them. 
Normally he shuts that down in about two seconds because they're like, no, no. If the alternative is fun, toys, playful, books are great for bedtime and quiet time with mom, and I certainly encourage parents to do that. But normally once they know that they can do something else, they're over that book love with therapy. And I think that's fine. You know, I mean, I, I think don't that's think fine that too. Books... And eventually, well, and they've got to learn to understand what the real objects mean before they under, before they get to picture identification and labeling. And that's what I tell parents too. If he and, and this is really holds true for our friends on the spectrum. Sometimes they can label a lot of things in a book, but they have no clue that the one particular shoe that they are calling a shoe in the book, that that word also pertains to what they have on their feet right there at that moment. And mm-hmm. that is really hard for a lot of parents to understand because they think, oh, he's got the word shoe, he understands it, but he might only have it in one context. Or our kids that are, that are on the spectrum that are great labelers, they can only label. And so then, and this is what we talked about at the beginning, Requesting is a totally different pragmatic function, and granted, we would start with request that a kid can already label words he can already say by just, again, naming a picture, naming the puzzle piece, or, you know, naming it when it's on his favorite video, but if he doesn't understand how to use that same word to get that object, you know, there's still a big disconnect there, and it's not behavior, (laughs) It's not behavior. It is how he is wired for language. It is just he is neurologically different than what you're expecting him to be able to do. And so you have to come up with ways. And again, I tell people, and I say we're going to let's use the words he can already say. But being able to label a picture and say the name of something is not the same language function for a kid on the spectrum as it is for a typically developing kid that can use the word across a lot of different contexts. And again, that might be news to some people. Maybe parents and maybe even some therapists haven't thought about it in that way before. But it really is a totally different function. And that's why a lot of people go to that it has to be behavior because he can say it. Right. If you've only, Yeah, and they go straight to that without thinking about what you're really asking that kid to do. Is it a different pragmatic function? And, again, if you don't know what the heck I'm talking about, pragmatics mean language use, how we use the words that we say. You can you can use the word milk to ask for milk, which would be requesting. You can use the word milk to label it if the kid sees the milk in a sippy cup or if the kid um, asks, could use it to answer a question, what do you want to drink? You know, answering would be him saying milk there. We use our words in lots of different ways. It's not just in one context. And especially for our kids on the on the spectrum, they can get so locked into one context and not be able to use that same word to respond to a question, even in a comprehension kind of task. Just because the kid on the spectrum is able to say it doesn't even necessarily mean that he understands it. Right. And that is a real problem where a lot of parents and uh, even a lot of therapists miss that very basic truth to how our little friends on the spectrum, how their brains really function. And so many times that's why we'll see those expressive scores on tests really above what their receptive scores indicate. They may be able to say a lot more than they're able to understand, and that is completely opposite of typical development. And sometimes therapists miss that piece. And I think that they're looking at the fact with this little guy that we're talking about that he's four 
and thinking he ought to be able to do this, and like you were referring to, this chronological age versus his developmental age. Developmentally, even though he's able to pop out a phrase, he's not even developmentally too, in my opinion, based on what you said. He's more like 18 months. Mm-hmm. And so they're asked, would we ever think an 18-month-old could sit at the table and color and not pitch a little fit for more than a few minutes? That would be unrealistic. But yet, it sounds like that's what the expectation is during that session. So you've got to look at all those factors. And as a therapist, not only do you have to look at that and plan for that, you have to be able to explain that to other people. That you're, I mean, these therapists are supervising new therapists and new <laughs> students. Don't even get me started on what a big problem that is. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's a huge problem yeah. because they're not really looking at where that kid is and what he can do. And what I was going to say for us who work in early intervention, not only have you got to be able to juggle all those different facets in your mind about one particular kid where he's falling and what his strengths and weaknesses are, you've got to be able to explain that to parents so they understand, okay, he might be able to say this word when he's looking at this favorite book or watching this video or, or whatever, but he is not necessarily able to use it to request. And that doesn't mean that we're going to punish him and treat this as a behavioral thing because it's still a language deficit, and you've got to treat it like that. So, um, And I do, I mean, this gal who who wrote the email, her instincts sound like they're pretty dead on. She knows in her heart and in her gut, this just doesn't feel right, you know, and she's in a difficult position because she's um, new to the game and is kind of, being taught and mentored by these other folks, and so she just may have to bide her time. Hopefully she can see him separate from that situation and do what feels more natural and is probably a better approach anyway. So she, right. she yeah. kind of needs to play the game. But, you know, that would be I would have a hard time being a party to that and not saying, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> no, yeah, let's we're, we're going to take him out of that yeah. seat right now. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it would be really hard well, to watch that. I know, and it's yeah, yeah. And again, we haven't seen this kid. There may be some other factors that we don't know. Blah 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 blah. We can only go by what we're told and based on our experience, because this is not the first time we've heard about this kind of thing, or seen it, or felt like it, or known of it happening. I mean, this is something that's sadly pretty common. So I'm I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about it kind of in this way. And again, uh, a lot of times with um, well, I'm not even going to go there. Let me just back up to where we were talking about that reference. We said the first thing that we're going to do is choose toys and activities a child likes. The second thing was allow a child to take a lead in using the toys. And it sounds like with the pictures that they're kind of trying to do that. So that's another thing that I would incorporate is really letting him pick what he wants to do. Other things that they recommend, um, imitating a child's actions on objects to elicit reciprocal play. If he doesn't even know you're in the room, though, you don't need to even bother imitating what he's doing because if he's not looking at you and not having some joint attention there, you're, you're wasting your efforts because he's got to know that you're there first. And again, I'm not going to read through the rest of these, but these these things, the point of me quoting this reference is we have references that support common sense decision making and therapy. So just because somebody's trying to use a fancier behavioral approach or whatever you want to call it doesn't mean 
that you can't take a play-based approach and say that it's evidence-based as well. And I love this article because, again, I think it should be called Common Sense Speech Therapy because it really does take what we all inherently know about working with young children and puts it into words. So take a look at that if you need some ground to stand on of, about why toys are better and doing what a kid likes is better and letting him take, make some decisions about what he wants to do is better and all those things. And, again, I think that some of us lose sight of that in our careers and get focused on things that don't really matter when we're supposed to be teaching young children how to communicate. So take a look at that. The reason that I'm rushing is I want us to be able to talk about co-treats because that's certainly something that sounds like that's happening in that email. And co-treating is something that, again, I'm shocked that it's a new topic over three years into our show because it feels like we've talked about every darn thing we could talk about. But co-treating and how we feel about that and what's appropriate when it's not appropriate, I think co-treating is a lot of fun. Uh, Kate, we got to co-treat this past week, which is a real treat for me. I so love doing that with you and getting to be in the same room and do the things that we talk about doing every week on the show. That was kind of fun doing that. And so I certainly think that that's appropriate in select situations. If um, you're kind of new to a team, if you're trying to figure out what's working for somebody that's not really working for you, that's a good situation to do it. If you're going to observe a new therapy technique or style or maybe the OT or the PT is recommending something positioning-wise or movement-wise and you're not quite sure what they're talking about, it is wonderful. It is preferred that you want to go take a look at that and problem solve together or get someone to demonstrate and show you how to do what you're supposed to be following through with with a kid. Lots of states are going to the collaborative or the primary service model where there's one primary therapist and our job is supposed to be to train people that might see the kid more often than we do or work with the family to be able to carry over the strategies that we're recommending. You can't really do that unless you know what those strategies are. So co-treating is great in that situation. Yeah, I especially However, like it, I think, best with um, my first choice and I think probably my biggest weakness as a, you know, jack-of-all-trades kind of therapist, which is what kind of DIs are, at least in theory. Um, I especially like it with kids who have a lot of motor stuff going on and um, with the PT because that's very kind of discipline-specific, and I always feel like, gee, I don't want to do anything to hurt this kid, and I really would like to have the expert sitting there telling me, you know, you want to move him this way, you want to position him this way, you want him to use this arm more than this arm. You, I mean, some of it's common sense, but some of it is not. Some and of it's not, so, yeah. Right. It's, it's maybe common sense if you're a PT and you've been doing it a while, but I don't feel like I, you know, know enough to go in there and act like I know because sometimes I just don't. So I really like on occasion with some kids to, to have a session or two with a PT and they can say, now, what do you think about this? Well, what what have you been able to do with this? Or what's your goal on that? And show me how to put them that way and whatever, whatever makes sense for that kid. But And sometimes also OTs can be um, a session with an OT or a number of sessions perhaps because they most specifically address the sensory stuff, and so many of our kids have sensory issues, although I'm going to be honest and say <laughs> um, 
sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. I think a lot of times, Laura, our high-energy, play-based, fun, fun, fun approach more often than not works pretty darn well for kids with sensory Uh issues. And I think a lot of times, um, well, I will say a number of times anyway, that I have co-treated with OTs, they're kind of surprised to see how well a kid may do with me because I'm using that approach, and most kids with sensory issues really respond unless they're just so kind of reactive or high energy themselves that I might set them off. But normally I think I can balance that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but So OTs a lot of times go, well, gosh, he, he really liked that. He played pretty well. And it's like, yeah. Which yeah. means he's doing better with you than he is with me. Good luck with what you're doing. Go on. Yes, you don't need me that much at sometimes all. Sometimes yeah. that is the case. And I do think it's because that's kind of our go-to approach with most kids. And for most kids, that is a very effective approach. They like it, and you're going to get about as good as they can give you for that hour. And so, you know, I don't always – I do get that response sometimes like, wow, yeah, he was really into that. He really liked that. He was really playing. Like, yeah, yeah. So I don't necessarily – I'm not necessarily the first one to recommend co-treating. When people want to do it, I'm always happy to do it, but – it does kind of seem like a lot of times I end up doing the session and they observe and I think, well, I'm not sure what I got from that, but whatever. I mean, it's always kind of nice. To be able to <laughs> well, it would be good if they and, were carrying that over, if they worked some of that into their sessions. Yeah. It would be nice if that happened, but sometimes, I mean, we know that doesn't happen. There is kind of an ugly side of co-treating, though, and that is what you just brought up, where either one person does all the work and the other person's just kind of sitting there, not mm-hmm. really contributing, observing, that kind of thing. And I think always kind of scratch my head and wonder, too, like, hmm, why did I do that? And if I do feel like, okay, my role here was to teach and for you to be able to take these strategies and work that in and help mom and dad understand that, then that's absolutely fine. But if it was really for me to gain something, too, and then they end up not really showing me anything, I always kind of wonder, hmm. Right. Well, and a lot of times I think, and that may be part of my baggage, is that being DI, I think a lot of times, other quote-unquote experts think, well, I need to educate that DI, and then it ends up I do the session, yeah. and I think, well, I don't know what I got from it, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think bad. it works really you well know. when when there's that good give and take. I love mm-hmm. what we got to do on Friday where I would do a little bit, and then you would kind of do your thing, and then I would try to join in a little bit, and then, then one of us well, would let, do let something. Let's just give a little background here. This is a little guy who's on the spectrum and is not an easy child in general, but you've seen him longer and you've had some good, pretty productive sessions, you know, in light of what's going on with him. Right. And up until last Friday when we co-treated, I had seen him twice. And, frankly, they were um, very difficult sessions for me yeah, and for we the mom and for the, and for the yeah. child. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, you know, it was great for me because I definitely, and I said up front going into it, I'm going to kind of sit back and just watch a little bit because normally our approach is similar enough that if a kid does right. pretty well with you, he's going to do pretty well with me. And up right. until Friday that had not been the case. So I definitely was very much there to see, okay, what am I doing wrong? Because, <laughs> you know, I've got to 
be able to get better because I'm not a therapist who loves a kid who's miserable for an hour. I just think that is teaching him the wrong thing, to hate therapy, right. and that is not my goal. So I've got to be able to change something, very something, you know, or positive for everybody. So I sat but back and watched But what we figured you. out, right, but what we figured out was it really wasn't you and what you were doing. It was just that... You saw him in the afternoon the first time, which he's a kid that really falls apart and needs to nap, even if he doesn't always nap. Boy, he needs to nap. He needs to do some pulling it together and crashing so he can kind of reboot and have be a little bit more regulated. And you saw him on the third day of a pretty restrictive uh, new diet. And so he was miserable. It sounded yeah. like, and we talked about that last week, he was probably pretty darn hungry. But then a week later, he looked a lot better. He, I just went in and kind of did the normal stuff that I do, and he took to that right away. And then you were able to, after, you know, you were, I think, pretty a little bit gun-shy, like, oh, no, here comes, he's going to fall apart, here it comes, here it comes, because you had never really seen him be pretty participatory, and then you were able to just dive right in, and then you had some great successes, and I want you to share those two little routines that were darling that you've been holding out on me for the 15 (laughs) years. (laughs) I've got to have something I didn't learn from you, Laura, that now I'm giving (laughs) away my two two little secrets. Actually, I can only think of one, which was the bubble thing. What was the other one? Oh, your cute little routine with that ball. Oh, the ball. Oh, yeah. Okay, well. Your little song. Your little song oh. was darling. And I don't have that ball anymore, but let me tell you, I'm getting on Amazon. You're thinking about that ball, that ball huh? you like, I used to have one, referring, and I, it for, broke. For listeners who are compulsive about your choice, she is referring to what, um, when I bought it, it was called a Hoberman ball. I think that must be who created them. It's kind of a... Uh, well, mine's a big one. It probably opens up to about two and a half, three feet, and it has bright colors, and it folds up into a ball that's about maybe 12 it's, to 18 inches. Then you open it up, and it's a big ball. It looks kind of like a molecule. It looks like something you might use in a chemistry yeah, lab. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. More yeah. like a chemistry kind of experiment right. thing. And it is not really geared towards little kids. It's probably a bigger kid's toy, but I liked it years ago, and I found that um, some kids really like it and i haven't even used it in a long time but since this little guy wasn't loving anything else i had I had introduced i thought i'm gonna dig out that that's why it was in my attic because i might need it in 10 years and by gum there it was so i got it um so anyway the first thing was laura was doing bubbles and he liked the bubbles you said sometimes he's a little bit more um enthusiastic about popping them he did pop them but he wasn't really actively actively engaged in. He was right. okay, and he was happy. It was okay. Far I mean, I'll take anything. it. Right. It was yeah. okay, but it wasn't. And as you got ready to end it, because he really kind of was losing interest. Lost interest, yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, do you ever do the belly routine? And she's like, what's the belly routine? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then this is, and I'm sure it was born out of, and I can think of kids that I used it with, it's always those kids that show maybe some interest in the bubbles, but although they may be initially interested, it's kind of easy to lose them, just as right. this little guy kind of got bored and was we were losing them. And what I do is um, go into the what I call the belly routine, and I just 
say that, you know, I, I blow the bubble and I say, I want to get your belly, 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 belly. And I make a big old deal and I'll catch the balloon or the bubble on the stick and then I take it towards his, in a very exaggerated, playful, socially animated way and then pop on his belly as goofy as I can be and usually kind you of You lifted up his shirt though, so it's right on his Lifted up his shirt so that he could feel that wet slime on his belly and then kind of tickled him real fast afterwards and he did in fact... Um, really kind of respond to that. And then he was even a couple times kind of lifting on his little belly. And He wasn't kind of, kind of lifting his shirt. He was lifting his okay, shirt. He was and he was looking right shirt. at you. And no doubt about that he was engaged. Yeah, yes, he, yeah you're he, not giving yourself was, enough credit there. Well, I didn't reinvent the wheel here. But it, it did happen <laughs> on that day that he responded to that. And right. I, sometimes I'll do ears, sometimes I'll do toes. It does seem like for a lot of kids, belly is the best. They seem to really, it's easy for them to get, and it's real, um, you know, they kind of like their bellies anyway, so belly well, is my Well, I food. liked it because he was standing up, and so often when our two-year-old friends stand up, that puts their little faces right there at eye level with you when you're sitting down. And so that right. that was perfect because he was mm-hmm. standing up, kind of leaning against his mother, and you were able to do that lots of times in a row. And for kids who like that routine over the years, and you know, unfortunately, no trick we use is 100% foolproof. Right. But I have had kids where I really could teach them quite a few body parts because they, you know, you couldn't teach them on themselves, yeah. you couldn't teach them on a doll, you couldn't teach them on a picture, you couldn't teach them on yourself. But when I started that, I'm gonna, where's your ear? I'm ear, 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 and then pop in his. Oh, and that's funky when you pop a balloon in their ear, but. Some kids like it, and so that's kind of, you know, belly is where I start. And for those kids who really like that, and, you know, once they begin to get it, you're saying, ooh, ear, ear, and then they're grabbing their ears, and you think, oh, my gosh, he knows what his ear is, you know, because (laughs) until then, ear wasn't really significant, you know. So anyway, that was the belly routine. And I've done bubbles on kids' body parts, but it was great how your timing was so perfect with that because again he had done he had maxed out on bubbles he had watched me he had made a good attempt for him to imitate popping the bubbles he was visually tracking those and again everything is relative so for him i was really pleased with how he did the initial part of the bubbles he stayed with it probably what five minutes before he lost interest and then that's when you started the belly routine, and so that mm-hmm. naturally expanded his time with one activity. It made it a lot more social. Because yeah, he that was, was the right big at thing. You. For, yeah, he that he was really intrigued by that, and who knows? And you know, out of ten kids, two kids might love it. He happened to really like it, and he, yeah, he was lighting up with that. And anytime he I totally see twinkle, woohoo! That's good. Yeah. Especially for a kid like that, because you know, we don't see that very often. I mean, right. you know, with him. And the mm-hmm. other thing he did is that he participated in that routine because he li- his part was lifting up his shirt, and he did yeah. that. And for a kid mm-hmm. who doesn't do a whole lot purposefully with toys, he's just learning. I mean, Friday was the first day that he's even pushed the lever on the twirly racetrack. He's just getting cause and effect. He's right. just now learning how with a like the bubblegum. Um, 
ball toy to pull the lever and do that. He's just learning to hit the ball with the hammers. I mean, all those really basic, what we call baby toys, he's just learning how to do all that stuff. He's not really consistent with that. And so for him to learn his part in that social game, the first day you did it with him, that was huge for him. Huge. So right. I just thought that was, I thought it was great. It was it was just great. And again, the timing is what made that so good because he had already done, you know, several minutes with the bubbles and it already kind of Which it was really best always for, when I use it. I do the bubbles yeah. in a more traditional way first and then when I see yeah. okay, he's he's getting bored with I'm this rather him. than just put him yeah. away right away. And I do right. that with a lot of things, don't you? You know, you try it one way. Uh-huh. You get them for a while, and then you see, oh, I'm losing them, and then switch it up. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But that day, I was lucky. The gods smiled on me because I struggled with him, and they gave me three good minutes. <laughs> well, I think it's probably something. even a little longer than that, because remember, he, he even first he was well, down. Yeah. And then he was up on the table, standing up, and you still did it up there. And, again, some of you therapists might be cringing, saying you let him stand on the table. Well, yeah, because he does it anyway, <laughs> even when we're not there. Right. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was great. The other one was your ball. Do you want to talk about your ball routine tonight, or do you want to save it for next week? Oh, I'll do it so I don't have it to worry about. It's okay. no big deal. None of this is any big deal, but you know what? It's fun to have something new to try, and I'm sure there's somebody on her exercise bike right now thinking, oh, pop them on the belly. I'm going to give that a shot. The Hoverman ball routine, and I've used this with other balls, too. It's just a little song that I learned years ago at some, you know, early childhood conference, and it was a three-day conference, and I think there I learned two little songs. There's one lady who was cute. And two songs that I learned when I was there, and this one is about, I use it with this Hoverman ball. And I it goes, um, a little ball, and that's how I just start with it, you know, all the way compressed. A bigger ball, a great big ball, I see. Now let's count the balls we make. One, two, and I'm making it bigger. Three, and this is a kid who likes numbers anyway, so that's kind of a good uh-huh. thing for him. You know, you know he which, you know, a lot of kids on the spectrum do like those numbers. And so I was hoping, and he just really kind of likes the ball. He likes to get in the ball. We were trying to make that pretty social, and he he likes it. I mean, I'm not sure it's a complete routine yet, but I think I'll probably get it there. Oh, it's the it's the beginning of a beautiful routine with him. And, again, I think you're selling yourself short here because he's a hard kid. He's not a kid yeah. that's just going to respond to every single thing that we do and try. So even when you have a hint of success with kids like that, you take it and you run with it. And by run with it, you know, you mean you're going to do it and you're going to tweak it and you're going to figure out what he likes and what he what makes him smile and what gets him on one day and what, doesn't seem to get him you're going to switch that part and do something differently um but i thought it was really cute okay so how does it go it goes a little ball do your thing again because i'm typing a, this right now so a, I a little ball <laughs> and this i probably am paraphrasing because i'm really Who good cares? at that but what yeah. stuck after literally 10 years ago i think was the training it was early on yeah. um a little ball a bigger ball a great big ball i see now let's count the balls we make one Two, three, and with that, I pop it open on the third one. So there's kind of a big thing on three, and that's it. 
Well, those were very, very, very cute routines, and that's certainly something I think everybody loves new ideas. And again, using the new idea, it's the timing. So much of that, do your normal little routine that you do, if it works, with a kid, and then when you're about to lose them, introduce the new part. And again, that's that's expanding the routine. That's um, keeping him with you longer, increasing that time of engagement, helping that joint attention. I mean, there's so many therapy goals that you can meet just by introducing one new little part. You're helping your right. kid learn and how to sequence activities. Right, you know, and with that, lot. he was... As I was doing the little verse, he was looking at me. He was kind of uh-huh. twinkling. He was. It he was, was definitely right. Yeah, he, he was, was reaching for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and reaching for you and for your. Now I think he was probably using your shoulders to stabilize himself. That's right. okay. That's the beginning <laughs> of social engagement, though, and that reciprocity, where his part, your part is, you're holding up the ball, and his part is, he's reaching for the ball. Uh-huh. You know, and when you can get a kid who is pretty isolated and self-directed to do those parts, I mean, that's the beginning. That's where you start with kids. He's not going to say, Kate, I want you to do that cool song that you do with that ball thing. He's not no. going to say that probably ever in the time that we see him. And truthfully, maybe never get to that language point ever. I mean, we hope that he does. But you've got to really look at those successes and those little bitty things, and that's, you know, breaking those kinds of games and activities down so that you're thinking, okay, that's progress because he's reaching for me. That's more progress because he's looking at me. He's staying with me. That's even more progress, you know, and really analyzing it like that. I mean, that's the that makes or breaks a therapy session and helps you really measure progress with kids over time that, again, they're not – he's not going to – you know, he said a couple things when we were there on Friday, but really we've got a, a long way to go before we're going to consistently hear words. I mean, we've got to have a whole bunch of more goals to meet in the meantime if we're just waiting on those words. And that is our ultimate end goal, but it's certain those aren't our short-term goals or we're going to all be disappointed. And he right. needs to work on all those other prerequisite things too. So I thought those were great routines, and I love them. And that was a ton of fun to get to treat a kid with you, since we talk about it ad nauseum <laughs> in our real lives and uh, here on the show. So that was a ton of fun. Well, and it helped ultimately reduce my anxiety because, as much as I want to believe it wasn't really me, boy, when you're the one failing and kids <laughs> miserable for two consecutive, your only two sessions with them. You know, I was feeling a little gun-shy, and that's never a good way to go into a session, especially with a hard kid. I think they right. those kids read that anxiety pretty I well. And I you've really got to, even if you're feeling it, you've got to be able to fake it, like, I'm cool, this is going to be a good session. And you're going to have a good time with me, yeah. Yes, and if you're nervous because you've had a bad session or two, it's harder. And, I, you know, I think sometimes... Other therapists I hear about, they fall into that trap, and I think, oh, she's afraid now. And I get it. I mean, it's scary, you know. <laughs> it is you know. scary, but you've just, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying you as you, but I mean, but when a therapist is in that situation, you just have to fall on your previous experiences and say, okay, I've done this, and this isn't, you know, the, that wasn't so great. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this. The thing for him was being really objective about what else is going on with him and it not necessarily, I mean, like you decided after that first week, okay, I'm not going in the afternoon anymore. That was a disaster, not doing it. Right. I mean, so you changed your time. And then the next week, well, we can't help the whole dietary thing. 
Um, with some kids, that might have gone okay on day three for really hard kids like that. Um, you know, if you can plan ahead, you might say, hey, listen, I'm not coming until two weeks into that diet. Now, that's not always completely feasible or practical. But there are some things that you know, like I'll never go see a kid the day he got in the afternoon after he got tubes in the morning. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> when you have those environmental things that happen, you readjust and you say, okay, this probably was because his – that session went so horribly because and again I'm not saying that I'm not saying that about your session with this boy, I'm just saying in general. Because of all these extraneous factors and let's see what I can do about removing those and making those where they're not gonna be as much of an issue anymore. Had things gone poorly on Friday though, you still would have learned, Oh gosh, it's not me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm glad it went great, and I'm glad, I mean, he did great for him. You know, all things being relative, and for every kid it is, you can only compare a kid to his, what he's able to do at the moment. And for Friday, for him, that was a good session. Right. Well, he was able to do some things that he hadn't done even, I mean, you'd been able to engage him and keep him reasonably happy, but he was able to put the car in the car track and tried to push the little lever. He's never done that before. Yeah. Brand that new, mm-hmm. you know his play skills, and we did shows about that several weeks ago about how you move kids through those play skills. Boy, he was—he's really going to get there. And again, before Friday, I might not have thought that he was even really going to do that yet because I've this Friday was the seventh time I've seen him, and that was the first time that he really is sort of starting to play with not just one thing, not just one good thing that session. There were several toys that he's really starting to play with. Now, is it 100% typical? No, and it's not ever going to be with him because he's on the spectrum. I mean, that's just part of it. So anyway, I'm glad we got to share that real-life story, and you got to share your two cute little uh, routines. That's a good thing I didn't know about those when I was writing Teach Me to Play with You or those would have gone in that book. That, that can be the next book. <laughs> Honestly, you know what, Laura? I know you do this. Some things you just do and you don't even think about. You don't even know you're doing it. Yeah. Right. I mean, and it's that's... Yeah. And they seem like nothing, but it just on that day, that kid, that moment, ooh, that was good. We got to extend it five minutes and he was pretty socially engaged by it. So, ooh, that was a but success. But but that's my sharing this kind of thing, and that's why therapy junkies like us like the show and why people will actually listen to us for more than one week because <laughs> hearing those new ideas really helps. And I know, again, there's somebody on a treadmill or somebody driving in a car or somebody doing <laughs> her dishes right now or the laundry or whatever who's going to say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to take that routine and I'm going to do that. Or she might not even consciously say that, but two weeks from now when she's struggling with the kid who's about to you know, walk away from her when she's doing bubbles, she's going to all of a sudden say, where's your belly? Where's your belly? <laughs> she might not even know where it came from. And she's just right. going to start it. So, again, that's why I think it's so great to get other ideas. Even if you've done this forever, even if you teach other people how to do it, it is still good to get new ideas. And I'm very grateful we had that opportunity on Friday. That was a lot of fun for me. Well, it was very good for me because I was feeling a little gun shy, and I have renewed confidence that I can go in and not let my fear be obvious and give it my best shot. Because I do. I mean, I know of other therapists where it seems like once it goes south, it can just be bad. And that's kind of what I mean about people who hate therapy. Yes, and it's 
hard, you know, when a kid is yeah. responding negatively and you're giving it your best shot. I mean, there have right. been times where I just want to say, I'm doing the best I know to do, and he's miserable. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm not trying to make yeah. it uncomfortable. And I think when Sometimes you have, you have to say that out loud, though. Sometimes you have to say that out loud to a mom so that she knows that you're trying, so that she knows that you realize, okay, this isn't going so great, you know. Right. And we right. all have those. Everybody, if they're telling the truth, has had right. those sessions. And that's the thing about this job. No matter how good you get at it, you can still have that kind of session with a kid or still get a really hard kid that makes you have to think about every single move you make. And that's right. good, and really, though. Right, really, really try hard and, and you yeah. know, dig deep to get through it and have it be positive. And, and it usually is with oftentimes kids who are on the spectrum, oftentimes the kids have big social issues and they, you know, right. It just isn't easy to sit and play with them, and I feel so sorry for other therapists sometimes when mom tells me, he really doesn't like it, he's crying the whole time, and I think, oh, I'll bet she's scared to death. You know, I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, Nobody likes that, and we're all trying to have a good, positive hour. Right. You know, so. Exactly. I did mine, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It makes you sympathize. But that's the point where good therapists don't just stop there. They think, how can I push through this? What can I do differently to make this kid respond differently? Is it something external? Can I change the time? Can I change the day? Can I change the whatever? I'm going to change those variables and then I'm going to change me because that's where it starts with getting real results with the kid. It's not always about the changing the kid. And a lot, that's the difference between, to me, an okay or a mediocre therapist and a great therapist is somebody who thinks like that. And even if it doesn't go perfectly, there's still growth there, not only on the kid's part, but on the therapist's part. So, right. you know, and that's my new career focus is teaching people how to do it and how to get there. And, again, it, we have to reward our successes with that and say, okay, the reason that this has gotten better is because we changed these external variables. You know, I might have done a co-treat. I might have done this or whatever, and then change yourself and then worry about the changes with the kids because right. so many times it starts with those things, not with I'm going to change the kid, I'm going to change the kid. And that's what those behavior approaches are about. It's about changing the kid, and a lot right. of times it needs to be about changing the adult and changing the right. circumstances first. So anyway, one other thing I wanted to say about co-treats, and then we are way long, is I do I get really mad when I step in on a team or when somebody tells me about people on a team that all they do is co-treat. And they never see a kid individually. And, you know, I always think that kid got half the therapy that he was eligible for. He got mm -hmm. half the time. And that is a, that's a, a cheating. Everybody is cheating the system. I don't like it either, And our system has gone, done an about-face. At one point in Kentucky, they did not allow any co-treating, or you had to get right. approval from the state beforehand so nobody really did it. And, now and they're allowing that's yeah. overboard, and now they're allowing co-treating, and I think that's great on occasion for specific reasons. It can be very beneficial. We just did it. Great. I think sometimes it's the perfect thing, but there are a few people who do nothing but co-treat, and um, I think with you, mm, they got half because there's no yeah, way kids, that, uh, that yeah. each therapist is giving 100% if you're sharing that hour. You just Even if you have the best intentions, you're really not. And I think the you child don't. is always yeah. better served with two separate hours. Not every week, sure, once in a while for very specific reasons. It makes great sense. But to say every week 
we're going to have the speech and the OT come together. I'm with you. The, the child paid for, I mean, the state or the insurance companies now paid for two hours, and they essentially got one hour. If that's what they're doing yeah. every week, that child's being slighted. It, mm-hmm. The child is being slighted. The parents are being slighted because not only mm-hmm. did the child not get, get half the time, the parents got half the time. And, right. you know, just like our mom there on Friday, she was with us the whole time. She heard us talk back and forth, with, and we didn't have to do a ton of that because I swear I think we read each other's minds now with what <laughs> we're going to do next or what we're going to try next or blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, she was able to be there, and we were able to talk about things. I mean, she really got, and again, he only got one hour of therapy, but she got both of us for a whole hour. But no way, shape, or form would I want to do it that way for that family or any kid every time because it, it, you know, they're only getting half, and it, it's not fair to anybody. It is just not right. fair to anybody. And I feel like I mean, those who want to do it every week are kind of content to give half. I think they're thinking, mm-hmm. that's a pretty easy hour. And they right. generally do it with hard kids, and I get that. And there's certainly some benefit to doing that on a rare, occasional basis, but not every week. Mm-hmm. If you can't not fly alone, you know, on a pretty regular basis, mm, <laughs> I question your approach. Because, like I said, yeah. a lot of times when I see kids with oftentimes an OT, they go, huh, he was really focused with you. And it's like... Yeah, that's because I used approach gets. You know, I think right. if you get your approach right, you should not need support from an OT every darn week. You should be able to learn from an occasional visit with her, use that in your session, and go with it and give the kid two hours a week instead of an hour a week. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree. And so that's when it's inappropriate. And I will say that to anyone who, I mean, I well, I, I would just, I'm, that's how I feel about it. And, you know, I'm not changing my mind because we're right. So there you go. All right. I had to almost say that under my breath. Okay. We are at the end of our show. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to send us any feedback, I probably shouldn't even say that. uh, But uh, (laughs) (laughs) email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com. And I hope you'll join us next week. Who knows what we're going to talk about. Maybe we'll get another highly controversial email this week like we did last week. So anyway. Join us next Sunday night, same time, 6 o'clock Eastern. Thanks, Laura. Good show. Thanks. Good show. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.